Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Happy Sunday to you. What a big day it is. Um, as we were praying at, elder, at the uh, elders' prayer time this morning, I uh, was thinking of a verse in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 6, and it reads this way, Many a man proclaims his fidelity, his loyalty, his faithfulness. But a faithful man, a man with fidelity and integrity, who can find? So the wise man of Proverbs says a lot of people claim to be trustworthy, but in reality, trustworthy people are rare. And uh, I was thinking this morning of how grateful I am for what we celebrate today in part which is the faithfulness of 55 years to the Word of God and to the people of God. So you need to know that John MacArthur is rare. If you don't know that, it's not because of his necessary aptitude. He's bright and he has capacity to both study and articulate the Bible. But the greatest asset is faithfulness. And we should appropriately honor that. You give honor to those to whom honor is due. And fidelity is rare, and it's very, very valuable. And uh, so I pray that today, as we celebrate together, that we'll find the maturity and the appropriate expression of joy and appreciation that recognizes that God is good to us because he's provided us faithful leadership. And that is uber rare. So I got to use my new word right at the gate. So I, I just wanted to encourage you with that because you can say, well, he's John MacArthur. Everybody in the world knows him. People applaud him. And, you know, I've seen that and I've stood in line and watched people come by, hundreds of people, to say thank you. But don't let that um, desensitize you to appropriate honor today. Um, obviously, it's the faithfulness of God in a life. I mean, anybody who knows Jesus Christ knows whatever good in us is a tribute to his grace and faithfulness to us. Um, but I did want to encourage you that way because we are privileged and I want us to appropriately celebrate and uh, have every confidence that you will. All right, James chapter 5. Here we go again. All right, we're in the home stretch. Somebody asked me Friday, so are you going to actually get this book done in two weeks? I said, I'm aiming at it. So this is second installment on life. Fragile. Handle it with prayer. Life. Fragile. Handle it with prayer. There's a subheading today, and that's the prayer of power. The prayer that changes the world. So we're going to dig into the how-to of the praying that should populate your Christian journey. So let me read you a couple of things that uh, I found interesting. And I, I tried to, to kind of mine out some special quotes of my favorite dead preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Um, let me start with this. It is interesting, says Spurgeon, and this is a little gem on prayer that is written relating to Colossians chapter 4, which says to be devoted to prayer, continue in prayer. And Spurgeon writes, it is interesting to remark how large a portion of sacred writ, that's the Bible, is occupied with the subject of prayer, either in furnishing examples enforcing precepts, or pronouncing promises. We scarcely open the Bible before we read, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And just as we are about to close the Bible, Revelation, you see the word, Amen. Come, come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. The Amen of an earnest supplication meets our ear at the end and prayer at the beginning. Here we find a wrestling Jacob. There, a Daniel who prayed three times a day, David who with all his heart called upon his God. On the mountain we see Elijah, in the dungeon Paul and Silas. 
We have multitudes of commands and myriads of promises. Spurgeon says, what does this teach us? But the sacred importance and necessity of prayer. We may be certain that whatever God has made prominent in his word, he intended to be conspicuous in our lives. If he has said much about prayer, it is because he knows we have much need of it. So deep are our necessities that until we are in heaven, we must not cease to pray. Dost thou want nothing? Then I fear thou dost not know thy poverty. Hast thou no mercy to ask of God? Then may the Lord's mercy show you your misery. A prayerless, and this was convicting to me, and it was so profoundly pointed, a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Prayer is the lisping of the believing infant, the shout of the fighting believer, the requiem of the dying saint falling asleep in Jesus. Prayer, it is the breath, the watchword, the comfort, the strength, the honor of a Christian. If you are a child of God, you will seek your Father's face, and therefore you will be able to live in your Father's love. Charles Spurgeon. So here's a couple other comments about prayer that may be interesting. Book publishers say that there is an interest in prayer such that there are 2,000 titles on prayer of the books in print, which is three times the number on other issues, including sexual or relational challenges. Christian publishers say after the Bible, books on prayer are the number one seller. Even atheists, one survey said, 10% of them pray. I guess it's just in case. (laughs) Spouses who pray together express greater levels of satisfaction. Interesting, a psychiatrist, no indicator he's a Christian, Arthur Kornhaber says, to exclude God from psychiatric consultation is a form of malpractice. Herbert Benson, Harvard Medical School cardiologist, prescribes prayer and meditation as a means of healing. The effects of praying and meditating and regular prayer are noteworthy, end quote. Listen to this. Other doctors have tried to show that prayer works even if the patient isn't. In other words, the patient's not praying. In an experiment at San Francisco General Hospital reported in the Southern Medical Journal, a researcher asked outsiders to pray for a group of cardiac patients. And even though the patients were not told that prayers were being said on their behalf, the study conclusively found that those who were prayed for recovered faster than those in an otherwise identical control group. Prayer. Handle life with it. And James is ending his epistle, this letter of how-tos and descriptors and describers of what Christians do if they possess real faith, how they live, the faith that works. And the faith that works prays in suffering In sunshine, when the wind is in the sail and the breeze is at your back, prayers of praise. In sickness and in sin. That's James's message to the people of God. And whatever the circumstances, you need to pray. Why? Because prayer has life-changing power. Prayer has world impacting power. Let's read the passage. Verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering, enduring pain from the outside? It's a general word. It's not specified what kind of suffering. It's fair to conclude whatever kind of discomfort, pain, injury, physical, relational, financial, whatever it might be, if you're suffering then you must pray. See the imperative verb? You must pray. 
That's what Christians do. That's what faith does. Is anyone cheerful? He's happy. Life is in his favor. Things are blessed and he's blessed or she is blessed and benefited. He is to sing psalms, songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Ask the net. Oh, you, you, can't, you, you don't have any power to do anything. No cans of self-help in the cupboard. You're bankrupt. You can't get out of bed. You can't get motivated to do anything. Depression would be housed in this word. Immobilized. Notice what it says. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must, see the must, call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, presumably because he can't get up or she can't get up. Pray for yourself. Pray praises of honor to God. And when you can't pray, get help. Recruit. Invite. Spiritual, mature allies entrusted to shepherd you to pray for you. Because you can't help yourself. And sometimes we get in our weak state and we're too embarrassed to ask for help. And James would say, you must call for the elders. And those elders, according to this, are commissioned, this passage, they are commissioned to pray over them after anointing that person with oil in the name of the Lord, so it's either medicinal or symbolic, in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith, so it's offered by the elders, the faith is the elders' faith, not the, I can't, I'm so weak, I can't faith, will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Suffering, sunshine, sickness, and sometimes sickness involves sin. So we read then, as the commission continues, and if he, the one prayed for, or she, the person, has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Why? Because they're confessing those sins, which is why the next verse follows. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Middle voice, you pray for one another. It's good for you. The confession's good for you. And the shared prayer time has positive beneficial effect. Verse 15, or verse 16 rather. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. Healed of what? Whatever it is that's got you down to the point where you can't function. The sin issues, the physical issues, the emotional issues, the relational issues, whatever it is, When others pray for you in faith, in the name of the Lord, that prayer with confession, humility, honesty, in answer to the question, is there anything in your life that potentially could be contributing to this situation? Because sin is connected to sickness. So he goes on to say, pray for one another. And then he gives this big, big bottom line. Why? Because the effective prayer, literally the energized prayer, energeo, the prayer that when it's energized, that prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, how much? Well, I'm glad you asked. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, so he wasn't a super saint, even though he had a significant and notable prophetic career. The emphasis isn't his specialness, but his lack of specialness. He's not unique. He's a human being. And if you read the story of Elijah, and we'll touch on some of it today, you know that after he had mammoth victory, he also had mammoth depression. He was threatened by... Jezebel, and he runs and hides and begs God to kill him. This is after Mount Carmel. This is after the fire and the rain. 
Just take me. So he was a man just like we are. He is human in his frailty, his nature like ours. And yet, he prayed. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Now, I'm praying that it won't rain today until we get done eating outside and celebrating. (laughs) (laughs) But three years and six months, hyperbole, exaggeration, no, not at all. Well, yeah, but he was a prophet, and that's why this happened. No, that's not what James says. The reason it happened is because he prayed... And he prayed earnestly. Verse 18, capping off the paragraph, Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain. So three and a half years of drought. And the sky poured rain. Do you see poured? Didn't drizzle. It poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So what's the big idea? If you have any clue, as to the realities that involve your life and your journey through it, you need to be a practitioner and a master class priority pursuer of prayer. And I can tell you, and this is where it's hard as a preacher, as a pastor, as a Bible teacher, I don't feel like I get this like I need to get this. I personally feel like Harry Wall's default spring-loaded to self-dependent. And if there's not a regular recognition, Harry, you are needier than you know. You are weaker than you think. And there is nothing that happens apart from a life immersed in prayer. And prayer isn't just to help you feel good. I mean, that's what some people say, right? Pray. If that helps you, pray. You know, that's some psychological thing. People who pray feel better because they are benefiting by the idea that maybe they'll get help. No, prayer actually does help because prayer moves the God who does anything and everything according to his perfect will. And the way you access the great God who can do anything according to his will is through prayer, which is why Colossians 4, devote yourself to prayer. First Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. Prayer is a critical component in the life of a Christian. So we began with prayer. Now we're going to look at the prayer that produces the power, the ingredients. Because I think the natural question I would have is, well, I don't, I've never stopped anything that I know of. Certainly not the rain. And if I did pray and the rain stopped, like my prayer today that doesn't rain until after 1 o'clock, it's hard for me to take credit for it. How do you pray a prayer? How do you pray in a way that is powerful? What are the characteristics, and and what I liked about this and what attracted me to it is much is accomplished when a righteous man is energized, passive participle. His praying is energized. So what energizes your prayers so that as a righteous person, you can accomplish much, even big much? So this part two of this life, fragile, handle it with prayer, involves the characteristics of energized praying. The prayer that will change your life and the prayer that changes the world. What are those characteristics? I'm going to give you five. And these are mine from this passage and other parallel passages. So here's how I would encourage you to consider. This is what makes Mario Super Mario. When all the bad guys disintegrate when Mario does whatever Mario does. Power in prayer. Five things. Number one, it is fervent. It is powerful when it's fervent. Elijah prayed 
earnestly. It's an interesting construction in the original language. It literally reads, and praying he prayed. It's like this emphatic redundancy to say, man, he wasn't just praying, he was praying. And the, the way it's constructed is meant to communicate passion, intensity. This matters to me, intensity. This is not just the perfunctory prayer. This is, this matters prayer. This energizes me, it drives me, it motivates me. It has humility in it, and it has desperate necessity in it. It's earnest and fervent because it matters. And that passion is described as fervent or earnest prayer. Go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're just going to see a little bit of the flavor of it. So, big idea number one about fervent prayer, it's passionate. And here's the other word, it's persistent. It doesn't quit. It holds on, it hangs on, it's relentless, it doesn't give up. Yeah, yeah, but there's a delay. That doesn't change anything. Because this matters and I'm going to keep coming. All right, 1 Kings chapter 18, this little section I wrote in my Bible, fire and rain. So this is fire fell from heaven. Elijah prays one prayer, soaks down the sacrifices, the prophets of Baal, they call on their God, nothing happens. He calls on the God of heaven, the true God of heaven, and it consumes the sacrifices and all of the water, and there's no doubt who's God and who isn't, and it happened like that. And then there's this next section, verse 41, chapter 18. So after the fire licking up the water and the consuming the sacrifices, verse 41, and Elijah said to Ahab, now that's the wicked king, husband of Jezebel. Hasn't rained for three and a half years, so let's set the context. Since chapter 1, chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat, and drink. Now watch this. For there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. And Ahab went up to eat and drink. But Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel, and and he crouched down on the earth. Now watch this. Put his face between his knees. So he goes to an elevated spot, he gets down on his knees, and he plants his face in the ground. What's the significance of that? This is desperate, and this matters. This is not just talking to God. This is begging desperately, passionately, and praying he prayed. So he put his face between his knees And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And what he's looking for is towards the Mediterranean where the rain clouds would gather, there is no sign of any rain clouds whatsoever. Despite the fact he told Ahab, Hey, clouds are coming because rain is coming. Verse 43, Go up now, look towards the sea. Went up and looked and said, There is nothing. Now, this is important. And he said, go back. How many times? Seven times. You know what that is? Persistent. Oh, the fire didn't, I mean, the rain didn't come like the fire came. Keep looking, keep going. It came about at the seventh time that he said, behold a cloud. So this is the servant. Behold a cloud as small as a man's hand. So it's an uber tiny cloud. Or it actually looks like a man's hand, and it's tiny. Because why would you describe a cloud as a man's hand? Oh, it looks like a man's hand. Unless it looked like a man's hand, and it was tiny. It's coming up from the sea. So he says to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. 
persistence. I will not stop. Keep looking, whether it's seven or 70 times seven. I will not be deterred. I will not be dissuaded. This matters, and I'm going to keep praying until that prayer is realized. Fervent prayer. They've been sick for a long time. Keep praying. They're sinning like a sailor on leave. Keep praying. But that's my son. It's my daughter. Nothing's happening. Keep praying. Whatever the circumstance is that affects power, what energizes the hand of God is the praying of the man or the woman who is passionate about it and keeps on doing it. It's persistent. Turn over to Genesis 32. Because there's an example of persistence in prayer, and and I want to use... Jacob, who's an example of somebody who was persistent despite the pain and the distraction. Verse 24, uh, Genesis 32, Jacob was left alone and wrestled, oh, excuse me, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So wrestled is going to be your key word. You're going to see it repeated. It's a wrestling match between a man the incarnate Christ, one of the Christophanies of the Old Testament, wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed, that's the wrestling opponent of Jacob, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with Now listen, I'm crying uncle right there. I mean, have you ever had anything dislocated? This is his hip. Shoulders and hips are the two most painful places to have a dislocation. It's excruciating. So the incarnate Christ, the man, touches the hip and thigh and dislocates it. So what does Jacob do? Uncle when Parker and I used to wrestle my son as a little boy, we would wrestle and he would, he would say he was through and I'd let go and then he'd be right back at it. So I made him say, this was my form of uncle at my house, he had to say, Parker, please. And dad did not relent until he said, Parker, please. And it had to be like a human pretzel for him to do that. Jacob was beyond human pretzel. He prevailed. He wouldn't let go. Despite the pain, despite the distraction. Why? Because it was too important. He would not be denied. You want to hear a word? Relentless. I'm not giving up. Which is why the passage goes on to say, even though with a dislocated thigh and the socket of his hip, verse 26 Then he said, this is the wrestling opponent, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, this is Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This matters to me. And I'm hanging on. I got no leg to stand on. What I'm not doing is letting go. I don't have any strength. I'm not going to win this because I'm going to outmaneuver you. I'm just hanging on. I'm not letting go. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. You know what that means, supplanter, deceiver. Listen, Jacob was a wrestler before then. It says that when he was in his, brother's, his mother's womb with Esau, he took a hold of his heel. He was wrestling in the womb, now he's wrestling out of the womb. Because that was his mentality. He was going to get what he wanted. He was called Jacob, but his motivator for getting what he wanted was deceiver, self-interested. And the opponent said to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Because you've striven with God. You've won the wrestling match. You've prevailed. 
Not because I'm weak, but because when somebody doesn't let go, I relent. And this is a defining moment. You're going from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, the one who has striven with God, the prince of God. Your name shall be called Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, and he said, Jacob, to his wrestling opponent, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Now Jacob knew who he was because it says, Jacob named the place Penuel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. And it didn't kill me. So why would I take you to Jacob? As if Elijah with his head between his legs praying seven times isn't enough. Because there is a biblical reality that hanging on, relenting. This is Hannah. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1. You remember this? Can't have a child mocked by my competitor. And the man of God sees her. And he thinks she's drunk because her lips are moving. She's so passionate in her expression. Her thing was... I must have what I don't have. And I'm hanging on. And I'm keeping, I'm coming. That's earnest praying. It is passionate praying. Uh, Just write this down. We don't have time to look, but it's worth noting later. Hosea 12, 3 and 4 commentates on Jacob. And it says of him in verse 3, Hosea chapter 12, in the womb... He took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, that's his physical maturity and his life maturity, he contended, wrestled. And it means to, that word means to persist by effort and exertion. In other words, he sweated for this. He contended with God. Verse 4, yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He didn't quit. He secured his desire. Now listen to this. He wept and sought his favor. You know what that is? Yeah, I'm so motivated and moved. I'm emotionally pursuing this. I'm weeping. The word's weeping, sobbing. This matters. Do you feel how deep it is? And it goes on to say in Hosea, he wept and sought his favor He found him at Bethel, which is what he named the place where he met with God, house of God, God meeting place. So this is Hosea chapter 12 commentating on Genesis chapter 32 with a little more flavor. This wasn't just I'm hanging on and I won't quit. I'm begging. I'm crying. I'm weeping. I'm seeking. And I will not be denied. Now, Harry Walls has not prayed many prayers that look like that. I know of two. I lost my two-year-old daughter and I lost my three-year-old son. October, Sunday morning, dressed like this, maybe not this suit, but something that looked like it, getting ready to head to the car to go to the church 10 miles south of town. I'm walking out the door. Karen said... uh, My wife, Karen, said, uh, Harry, where's Wendy? That's our two-year-old daughter, our only child. I said, honey, I don't know. Is she not in her room? She's not in her room. She's nowhere in the house. Not only is Wendy gone, but Lucy, the two-year-old black lab who lived in the house, played in the backyard, Lucy was gone too. So... What do parents feel when you can't find your only child? Now, if you're not a parent, you don't know this emotion. And God forbid you ever have to taste it, but it's terrifying. It's terrifying, especially when you realize that she's two, the dog loves water, and on the other side of our house is a large creek. My two-year-old doesn't swim, and she has no floaties. Honey, I've got to go to church. 
I got to preach this morning. No, there's no chance you're saying that. Oh, I'm going to take time to change, put my waders on and get ready because I'm going out towards the creek through the brush. Don't do that either. These are my bushwhacking clothes. You know why? There's a little girl and it was no chance. I'm not doing what it takes until I find the little girl that I love. Didn't find her. Went in the creek. Now that's both relief and the terror continues. But guess what? I could hardly talk. All I could say is, God, help me. Help me. Help me find Wendy. So I get in my car. I don't even know what to do. Drive around the neighborhood. My wife gets a phone call. Hey, do you have a little girl in a black lab? Yes. This is a block and a half away. Well, your little girl's sitting in our swing on the porch and your dog's laying there spending time with her. Now let me tell you what that is. Relief. I tell you that story not because I believe I'm alone, but I'm telling you that's the flavor of this intensity. You're not, it doesn't matter how you dress. It's not a matter how distracting it is. It doesn't matter whether your hip's dislocated. It doesn't matter. What matters is you will not relent until you get what it is you believe you need. Save them. Do you pray for your kids like that? Do you pray for the sick loved one? Look, I have a son who's been disabled since he was 13. I'm thinking after studying for your benefit and for mine this week, i got to up the pace because it's been so many years. He's 28. 15 years have gone by. I've prayed. I've prayed through the night. But this kind of praying says, I'm not letting go because this matters. And I need what I don't have. Help me. Fervent. Listen to this. This is uh, Psalm 109, verse 4. David is enduring hatred. And in the face of hatred, lying tongues who were busy trying to destroy his reputation, there's this verse that says, despite all of that negativity and hatred, I'm going to give myself to prayer. So in the face of harsh hatred, verbal accusation, and ruining of his reputation, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray. Spurgeon writes this, second gem. Lying tongues were busy against the reputation of David. But he didn't defend himself. He moved the case into a higher court and pleaded before the great king himself. Prayer is the safest method of replying to words of hatred. The psalmist prayed in... This is why I picked this spot for this gem. The psalmist prayed in no cold-hearted manner. He gave himself to the exercise. He threw his whole soul and heart into it, straining every sinew and, and muscle as Jacob did when wrestling with the angel. Thus and only thus shall any of us speed at the throne of grace. As a shadow has no power because there's no substance to it, even so supplication in which a man's proper self is not thoroughly present in agonizing earnestness and vehement desire, it's utterly ineffectual for it lacks that which would give it force. Fervent prayer, says the, an old divine, is like a cannon planted at the gates of heaven and it makes them fly open. The common fault with most of us is our readiness to yield to distractions. Our thoughts go roving hither and yonder, and we make little progress towards our desired end. Like quicksilver, our mind will not hold together, but rolls off this way and that. How great an evil this is. How it injures us, and what is worse, it insults our God. Why should we think of a, what should we think of a petitioner if while having an audience with the prince, he should be playing with a feather or catching a fly? 
Continuance and perseverance are intended in the expression of our text. David did not cry once and then relapse into silence. His holy clamor was continued till it brought about a blessing. Prayer must not be our chance work, but our daily business, our habit, and our vocation. As artists give themselves to their models, poets to their classical pursuits, I like this, so, we, so must we addict ourselves to prayer. We must be immersed in prayer as in our element, and so pray without ceasing. Oh God, he continues and finishes, Lord, teach us to pray that we may be more and more prevalent, impactful in our supplication, end quote. Anything that makes us pray is a blessing. The very act of prayer is a blessing. It draws God to you and you to God. The issue in the end, and this is the second point, effectual prayer, energized prayer. What is it? Fervent. Number two, it is also submitted prayer. It is in the name of the Lord. I want to go back to what is said about the elders who pray on behalf of those so weak they can't help themselves. It says the prayer, verse 14, they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil. Here it is, in the name of the Lord. Now that has, it's easy to say, and it's easy to pray. I mean, who prays that they don't say in Jesus' name? I mean, that's like normal. But this is what it means. When you're praying in the name of the Lord, when you're making that statement, this is what's housed in that statement. Number one, confidence in his capacity. He's the great high priest. The veil that is his flesh has been torn so that you can enter into the throne of grace. The God who has everything and can do anything, the veil has been parted through the body of Jesus Christ. I have access to God and I have a great high priest. Great because he's unmatched. He never fails. He's my advocate, my representative. I have confidence in his capacity to get me help because he's the mediator to the help. It's not a Catholic church and a Catholic priest. It's the living God, the perfect and the one and only, who is by his own gift to me, made it possible, and then he helps me. You're praying in his name because you're going in his name. Be like me showing up somewhere special, the Super Bowl, I come up, do you have a ticket? No, I don't have a ticket. Well, how are you going to get in? I'm Harry. I don't know Harry. I know Travis and Taylor. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You're going to have to, need, you're going to, have to know somebody to get into Vegas in the Super Bowl at the Allegiant Stadium. Either that or you're spending a ton of money. I don't have any money, and I'm not getting in because I don't know anybody. But there's a greater privilege available to you, and that is access to the throne where grace is provided, and you know the name. This is Harry, but I'm coming in Jesus' name. I'm coming in the name of the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm coming in His name. I'm confident in His capacity I'm confident in his ministry. And I'm submitted to his authority. I'm coming in the name of the Lord. The Lord rules. So when Paul prays three times urgently, take this thorn from me, and he hears the words, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness, which is a way of saying, no. I'm going to help you through this, but I'm not delivering you from this. Because this is a purposed trouble in your life. I know it's painful. I know it's deep. But there's in this difficult space that I'm not rescuing you from in terms of relief. I'm providing you grace. 
The power of God that enables you to know me and experience me in ways that no other stage will provide. And Paul gets it. He submits. He doesn't say, take this from me. He said, therefore, I'm going to glory in my weakness. That the power of God might be realized in my life through this difficulty. I'm submitting. I want out. But you're the Lord, I'm not. You're God and I'm not. And you're good. And your will is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's Jesus in the garden, sweat garden, sweat drops of blood. I want out. If it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Thine be done. Because powerful praying is submitted praying. I want what you want. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have with Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that if He hears us, we have whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests which we have asked of Him. It must be submitted prayer and it must be according to His will. You want to pray powerfully? Learn to discern, seek the will of God. It's what John 12 is. Did I come to avoid this? No, glorify your name. I'm acutely aware of your will, prescription, and way, and I'm submitting. Open the Bible. Let me give you some tactical encouragements. Open the Bible. Pray with your Bible open. Why? Because it's got the will of God contained in it. Pray while reading your Bible. Pray the Bible back to God. And while the Word of God is shaping the thoughts of the man or woman of God, pray what God brings to your mind. Yes, pray urgently. Pray actively. But pray with the Word of God guiding your thinking, submitting to it, aligning yourself with it. It is the compass of heaven. Look, you understand this. You can just pray anything you want. I mean, James 4 says we ask amiss. We want, to, we want it for our own lust. And the, the older I get, the more, the more crafty I become at getting what I want and looking like it's what God wants. So in your praying, you're submitting, you're surrendering, and you're seeking, God, define your will. I want to pray aligned with that. And as the alignment comes, it's like Paul praying when he he prays for certain specific things. Romans chapter 10. I'm praying for the salvation of Israel. That's a specific prayer request, and I know that lines up with what God wants. He wants to save lost Israelites. You're in good form when you're praying for God to save your children. Not willing that any should perish? Ask Him. If people will pray in this way, this is uh, the dean of spiritual... Christian spiritual life at Southern. If people, Don Whitney, if people will pray in this way, in the long run, their prayers will be far more biblical than if they just make up their own prayers. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God to help the people of God pray increasingly according to the will of God. John Piper put it this way, open the Bible, start reading it, and pause at every verse, turn it into a prayer. It's as simple as that. Number two, submitted prayer. Praying according to the will of God. Number three, it is specific prayer. I uh, said this initially when we talked about this last week, but it's very, very important to recognize that the effectual deasis. There are multiple words for prayer. One has to do with reverence and 
like the position, you're down on your face. One has to do with talking to God conversationally, like you're having a talk over a table face to face. Just talk. That's prayer. Just talking with God in worshipful ways is prayer. Prayers, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, I want prayers. That's the worshipful kind. And entreaties, that's this word. Deasis. It has a specific nuance. It's specific prayer driven by a pure need where you are desperately dependent on God to meet that need. This is the beggar's prayer. The beggar's not worshiping. He's saying, I need food. I'm blind. I cannot see. This is the praying that's specific. It expresses a need. And it's a specific request. And it's a pure need. It's not a make my life better need. It's a need that I, that's genuine. I need fed. I need clothed. I need care. It's prayer based on God's perfect desire to shepherd and provide. This is I will work for food. I'm praying for food. Not give me money and I'm going to buy booze. It's an honest request for an honest need. James 4, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You see, they ask. I'm asking. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. It is persistent, specific asking. All right, I'm going to close with it. Ah, man, I'm out of time. All right, so we're not going to do it in two weeks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love the force of this, and I love the fact that we get to do it from week to week. So you got three things to think about. Super prayers are persistent and passionate. They hold on. World-changing prayers. Pray in the name of the Lord. Confident in His ministry. Believing in His capacity and submitted to His authority. And man, I'm clear on what I'm asking for. And it's not for me. It's for Him and it's for them. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open the Bible today. And such a sweet, sweet Sunday we gather. And I know it's supposed to rain, but may these experiences in your word today, the fellowship of your people, the ministry of your conviction by your spirit in our heart, may it align in the celebration of our pastor and just the things we get to acknowledge as gifts from heaven, that this will be a great Sunday. And it'll plant seeds that affect real change, world-changing, life-changing, people-impacting praying. Teach us to pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.